Hello, everyone. Welcome to MD Webinar. I am LaQuinta Jernigan, Chief Operating Officer at MD Group today, and I am so fortunate to be your host. Um, thank you all so much for registering and joining our webinar on the impact of decentralization in clinical trials. Today, we are going to be speaking with our guests, Jamika Hill, Christine Daniels, Eric South, and Megan Lyles. Decentralization in clinical trials is a topic that's been receiving a lot of attention. And um, it's, a, it's a topic that it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. So today we're going to discuss what some of the barriers to participation are in traditional clinical trials, which has led us to this space of DCTs, the ways in which decentralized and hybrid models are more accessible and inclusive to patients, and why sites and sponsors might be reluctant to run a decentralized or hybrid trial and how we can overcome those challenges. But um, for now, let's have some introductions from our team, shall we, so that we can get going. Um, we're gonna start over here with Jamika. Yes, good morning, everyone. So I'm Jamika Hill. I'm a senior director of clinical trial health equity at Moderna. Um, I've been in the industry, the biopharm industry for the better part of two decades um, and always kind of the intersection of increasing access as a care option uh, for clinical trials to, um, to different populations, whether it be older adults, people of color, women, pediatrics, et cetera. So I'm really delighted to be on this panel for this important discussion. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Tabika. And now over to you, Eric. Hey, LaQuinta. My name is Eric South. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, the reason I'm here today, I've participated in three separate clinical trials. I am the founder and president of Gladiator Project, which is specializes in funding research for patients that have been diagnosed with glioblastoma to support patients and fund research. I myself was diagnosed in February of 2021, um, which is shortly thereafter is when we founded, my wife and I founded Gladiator Project. So I have a passion for clinical trials, not only for myself, but also helping others find a pathway to a clinical trial. I'm very happy to be here and to share my experiences to help others to find a, a, a way to a clinical trial. Thank you for having me here. Thank you, Eric, for being here. And now um, over to you, Christine. Thank you for the introduction. Um, as you said, my name is Christine. I originally come from Atlanta, Georgia. My educational background is in medical anthropology and a holistic PhD in biomedical sciences. And my connection to this topic is one as a member of a group that has that bears a disproportionate disease burden and staggering disparities in health outcomes as a caregiver and advocate to family members who are often solicited and participants in clinical trials, myself as a Black woman navigating the healthcare system as a recipient of care, and lastly, as a scientist working in biopharma to develop novel solutions to help improve the experiences of both patients and providers. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for being here. And last but certainly not least, over to you, Megan. Thanks, LaQuinta. Hi, everyone. I'm Megan Lyles. I'm Vice President of Clinical Operations at ProKidney, um, where we are developing a renal autologous cell therapy product for patients with chronic kidney disease. Um, I've been in the industry for over 25 years, focused largely on clinical operations and project management. Um, I started my career, though, as a research coordinator in Detroit um, in the late 90s, um, enrolling persons living with HIV and AIDS into NIH-sponsored trials. And I saw firsthand the difference that it made to those individuals being enrolled in a clinical trial. And so my passion really is to make sure that, that 
everyone has access to clinical trials. And however, we need to expand that access and, and get them to these clinical trials um, is, you know, what I'm looking at at how we can do this here at ProKidney um, with this patient population. And I'm very honored to be here with this amazing group of people. Thanks, Megan. And you're right. What an amazing group of people we do have. I mean, how often do you get to sit down with sponsors, clinical ops, scientists, and patients to come together and talk about one common challenge, issue, and opportunity? So um, this, this is a real treat, and I'm looking forward to this, um, this conversation. So let's, let's jump in. So to kick us off today, I want to get started or start with the patient experience. And um, Eric, we're going we're gonna to start things with you. What do you see as the biggest barriers for patients participating in more traditional clinical trials? So before we start talking about centralized, what are some of the barriers that you, you find participating in the traditional method of participation? I think what really worries me most is the um, awareness. You know, I, I get concerned. I think whenever somebody is diagnosed with a life-changing diagnosis, the first things that is brought up to that patient, it's a whirlwind of information and you're going to be, you know, talked to about the standard of care and the option of a clinical trial is not going to be the first things that comes out to you. So the awareness of the options of clinical trial is the thing that worries me most patients know about. Um, I come from a sales background and I'm very aggressive with my personal healthcare journey. You know, I was interviewing neuro-oncologists all across the country, I consider them interviews to figure out what do you have, what do you know, what do you have, what do you know, what's out there, what's out there. And I don't think people do that. I don't think there, there aren't enough advocates for people out there doing that for the patient. I don't think there's enough awareness for people to fight for their life to do that. I think there are organizations needed out there, like an MD group or a Gladiator Project, to be out there fighting for the patient let them know what's out there, what options they have. You know, the standard of care is not always the best option. It, that's what worries me most, awareness of trials that are out there, critically important. The other barriers are going to be the cost. I, did, I live in Nashville. I did a trial in Houston, Texas. You know, the cost to travel and lodging. I did another trial at UCLA in Los Angeles. It's not a cheap place to travel to, you know, and then time away from family. Those are the biggest barriers, travel, lodging, and time away from loved ones. Thanks, Eric. And, and I think that, you know, just thinking about the, the funds, like you said, you know, first, it's hard to find a clinical trial. There's not enough awareness. And if you're lucky enough to find one and you have that, like you said, that drive, that resource and that ability to keep fighting to find resources, um, to find a, an avenue to have a um, more than just the standard of care. Um, then once you're in a trial, you are met with all of these new barriers. How am I going to get there? The cost of participating, um, you know, you, like you said, having to be away from, from your home. So, I mean, I think, you know, just identifying those as barriers, we can see how we have we've gotten to this space, right, of, of looking at other options and, and making things more decentralized. Um, and so, Jamika, I think with, with that in mind, how can decentralized and hybrid trials offer better access for patients and kind of, you know, eliminate some of these barriers that Eric has just identified for us? 
Yeah, I mean, thank you for the question. And, and Eric brings up such a valid concern that I think permeates across different communities um, and different diseases, certainly. I mean, from you know a sponsor perspective, one of the things that we're always trying to do is how can we increase awareness, awareness of the diseases that are out there, awareness of the potential clinical trial opportunities. You know, we really view clinical trials as the first pillar in healthcare. Um, but that healthcare is not something, and that pillar is not something that people have, you know, have access to as readily as um, as other groups sometimes. And so, one of the things we want to do, and that I think for this discussion um, highlight really is decentralized trials and extending access into more neighborhoods from more trusted voices. So you're not just having to use your primary care doctor, perhaps. You're also being able to hear about different potential opportunities from your local pharmacy, um, from you know uh, a multitude of different organizations who you've trusted not just now but you've trusted in the past and you're going to continue to trust in the future. Will go a long way to um, building um, what has been lacking in the industry for a long time. I mean, Eric raised a really good point where you know he's he mentioned he kind of interviews, uh, but I think that's a skill set that lots of people just don't have. Um, but even not having that, when you're never presented with the opportunity as a care option, how would you know to ask about it? And so I think one of the biggest benefits of decentralized trials and hybrid trials is that it moves it out of a singular brick and mortar in your area into uh, more accessible um, places where you can actually participate. Um, to further that, I also think, you know, Entering into a clinical trial is just the first part of it, right? Like oftentimes you have lengthy visits um, that can span several years um, and we all lead really busy lives. And if you're also battling a disease, there's huge demands on your time, your financial finances and things of that nature. Um, I have a hard time even getting my eyes checked, but there's a mobile van that sits outside of Moderna that does, you know, mobile eye checks and I, I will access that. So I think by allowing decentralized and hybrid models to be um, someplace where people can actually seek care for a clinical trial while still not having to take away from their loved ones and, and the time that they're spending on things that are very fulfilling to them um, makes a lot of sense and it helps meet people where they are. And I think that's the ultimate goal of decentralized and hybrid trials is how can we really work to meet people where they are as opposed to um, having individuals try and fit a traditional model that really does limit people's accessibility um, to this care option. Thanks, Jamika. And I have to say, you know, because when we, when we talk about decentralized um, trials, hybrid trials, and we talk about clinical trials, you know, obviously a huge component of that is, you know, this, you know, a push for making trials more accessible to more, more communities um, and increasing diversity and our clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And so what impact do you think the, the um, decentralized solutions can have on diversity and inclusion? I think it can really benefit us. I mean, it's a really valid question. Um, I think, you know, diversity across the spectrum. So um, whether it's age, sex, or racial, ethnic um, background and heritage, I think um, decentralized and hybrid models need to be flexible. Um, Certainly people are not a monolith. And so we have to be mindful that we have to provide flexibility in our solutions. But I think one of the biggest things that um, it has the potential to do is um, to reduce some of the logistical barriers that may get in the way of people participating in clinical trials. 
um, and specifically, you know, diverse communities um, and, and individuals a lot of time. Um, when we think about uh, most oftentimes, you know, clinical trial sites work from nine to five, um, but most individuals also work from nine to five. And so finding the time, um, if there's not, you know, after hours or weekends that they're open, childcare can be a huge barrier. Um, even having to travel, you know, I live, I live in Dallas, Texas, um, but I'm in, I'm in a, an urban area. Um, oftentimes, if you're in a rural location, traveling two to three hours to a site, you know, every month, twice a month, et cetera, um, that may seem optimal at the beginning because you're so excited. But then when demands for your time um, start to encroach on that, I think we really start to see an attrition um, specifically of communities that may lack access and where those logistical barriers and disparities are even greater. So I think it definitely has the potential to be amazing. I also think there's elements that we have to be mindful of that um, could be a challenge, right? Again, too, that we're not, you know, people are not a monolith. There are some communities and there are some demographics where um, technology is not um, maybe suitable. Moderna works heavily with the Amish community. And this is just an example uh, for those who aren't aware the Amish community doesn't utilize technology. Um, and so a lot of these decentralized trials and decentralized solutions, we have to be really mindful of how we can um, still support um, that particular community while um, also continuing to move forward um, in other areas. So I think the flexibility um, and really trying to meet people where they are based on what their needs are and maybe not so much what our needs are as a, as a, um, a biofarm organization um, will really go a long way. The reality is that trust is not built overnight. Um, it's going to take a long time and on the shoulders of organizations um, out there that are more in the community to help engender trust and really um, help us build um, build that over the long run is is kind of what we're focused on here at Moderna and I hope as an industry where we can get to. Yeah, absolutely, and I I think that that's a, a really good a really good call out, um, Jamika, because there are so many organizations out there that focus on community engagement on. Um, raising cultural awareness within organizations, within sites, so that we can approach diverse communities with intention and respectfully. Um, and I think that, you know, we need to do more with leaning on those organizations, organizations partnering with them so that we can start building, building trust. And, you know, when we talk about decentralization, um, some of these solutions really can aid in that because we are able to, you know, send people into communities where they're reflected in that healthcare professional that's treating them. Um, so they're able to see themselves in them. And, and then that sometimes helps extend, you know, that olive branch of trust a little bit more. And, you know, there's, there's not, nothing is going to ever be perfect. Um, and, you know, even in a decentralized or hybrid model, there are probably lots of other things that we need to consider. Eric, um, for you as a patient, when we talk about some of these solutions, um, you know, bringing visits to the home, for example, trying to alleviate all of the travel requirements that you've experienced, um, you know, and you continue to experience to participate in your clinical trial. When we talk about these solutions, what challenges do you think patients might have in participating in research this way? I think scheduling in the home can be difficult for some of the things that are needed, especially the, you know, the phlebotomy that's needed or other things. You know, I personally have done some physical and occupational therapy at home. Some of that scheduling has been difficult, been nice to have. That's been a challenge for me. 
doesn't seem to make sense when I say it out loud. You think it would be easier to like just be sitting at home, but it's been difficult because you're dealing with other people's lives, lives moving around. I think that's all I would say about that. That was that's been a challenge. So I think Eric's point is is extremely valid because we hear it at Moderna across all different dimensions um, of people who enter into our trials. Um, I can I can say you know the scheduling is one challenge, but another challenge that we found as well is um, many diverse populations actually don't want people in their homes. Right? Um, there's cultural nuances that we also have to consider when it comes to the decentralized models. But then we have um, lots of pediatric trials going on and parents could be more static sometimes for the opportunity to have their child and that care from a clinical trial done at home. Um, and so I think, you know, again, um, it, it is if we can get in and scheduling works um, and it makes sense culturally, um, it's something to offer. But I also think, you know, we have to be fair in that just because it's not um, for everyone doesn't mean that it's not a viable option, but it may just not be for some people. And I think that we have to be okay with that as well. Oh, absolutely. And when we look at trials, we, no, no two protocols are going to be the same and no two patients are. And so, you know, when we talk about decentralized solutions, you know, at MD Group, we really try to elaborate on the hybrid approach to that. You know, like decentralized doesn't mean remote all the way, take it or leave it, but bringing in decentralized solutions within your protocol design, but still having options for patients so that we can meet them where they are. So we can offer a flexible way to participate in research so that, you know, if Eric can't have, you know, fit the scheduling in around his life as a parent of two children and a working wife, and he needs to go to the trial site, that's okay, because that's what works for Eric. But if Christine is happy to have you come in her home, then great, we have that option for her. But really, like, you know, like, like we always say, like, we want to have options so that more people can participate. And so you're absolutely right, Jamika. Um, it's, it's not gonna be for everyone and, and trials need to be flexible in that way to allow for it to work when it does and to have another option for when it doesn't. So a lot of the studies that I've been working on the past several years have required imaging components to them. And typically those Im that, that imaging is done in a separate facility. And so in my mind, I'm here in North Carolina, um, Tar Heel fan, and so, if I were in a clinical trial, there is a place near a, a facility close by to me that can do ultrasounds. I believe they can do CTs as well um, and x-rays. And it's about probably 10 minutes from my home. So why should I have to travel to the main campus over in Chapel Hill, which is, you know, depending on traffic could be, you know, 30 to 45 minutes. And as an industry, I don't think we've figured out quite how to do this. So aside from just the, the home visits, there's other logistical things at play here. And so if you have imaging scheduled on one day and an on-site visit scheduled the next day, the next thing you know, that participant is spending a vast amount of their time those two days just trying to get to different appointments. And so I think we, we need to somehow figure out a way to make it easier for the participant to get some of these things done that, you know, where, you know, maybe do imaging at the image at a close by imaging facility, but then, you know, balance that with maybe a home visit or in another trusted location where you can do the PE, the vitals and the blood draws, something like that. But I, I feel like we're still lacking a lot of clear regulatory guidance 
on how we can most effectively do that um, with, you know, not so much the, the logistics of it, but then like the data collection and how does that work? So it's just something that I've seen across the board that I think we, we need to focus on on how we can actually operationalize and execute it. Yeah, I think a lot of the main points have been touched on by everybody and I, I agree with everything that's been said. I'd also like us to not overlook the value of empowering patients through a hybrid model and giving them some degree of agency in dictating how they choose to, how they prefer to receive care, especially patients that are largely dependent on other people for so many aspects of just day-to-day life and not having that ability to do things that can be really discouraging. So empowering them in this way to be able to be active participants in the decision-making of the care they receive, I think is really important. We're talking about trust building and things like that and engaging populations that may have uh, reluctance to participate in things like that. Just giving them that sense of control is really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And empowerment will, you know, you'll, when patients have an option and they, they can have a, like choices to make, like you just said, and they're empowered to do that, they're more likely to enroll, but it's going to provide so much more retention um, for that patient too, when, when now they feel like they have a sense of control. And, and I think back to Megan's point, um, you're spot on. And I'm, I'm really hoping that some brilliant minds in our industry become, can come together to solve this problem because I was speaking to a parent of a child who, a, a parent of a child who's participating in clinical research right now in a clinical trial. And, you know, she said the one thing she wished she could, you know, get through to sponsors is that quality of life is, is valuable. It's important. And if your family's quality of life is all of a sudden being sacrificed to participate in a clinical trial, at some point you draw the line and say, it's just not worth it. And quality of life, that means like, am I, is my kid able to go to softball practice? Is he able to go to school and participate and, 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 and the things that his peers are able to do? Or are we always pulling him out to travel, you know, on a plane to go somewhere where we could have done it down the road, like you said, Megan. So it's something that our patients really care about and it's on the top of our mind. There are minds that need to be part of our discussion as a collective as well. We need to figure out a way to solve it. And I think that's a really good point to kind of segue and shift gears a little bit into the clinical operations side of things. And so, Megan, um, as Vice President of Clinical Operations at ProKidney, what operational challenges have you experienced when it comes to conducting decentralized and hybrid clinical trials? Well, as mentioned, there's not really clear regulatory guidance. I know FDA just issued a draft guidance out, you know, for public comment. And so it kind of gave us all a little bit of insight into kind of what they're, what they're thinking. Um, but, uh, you know, of course, it's, as with most guidances, it's, it's full of recommendations and suggestions, but no clear path forward. But really what we're finding, too, is that we want to be able to help. We want to be able to help the sites because we know they're overburdened and we know that resourcing remains an issue. And so we want to be able to help the sites to make sure that the, that the participants do have options. And so we listen to the study coordinators. Um, we are going to be implementing participant surveys as well. But what we're finding with our sites is that not all of them want to opt in to provide these services, even something as simple as, you know, providing you know, patient reimbursement in a timely manner, they would rather do that themselves as opposed to, you know, using the, you know, a debit card or something like that that can be easily loaded. And, you know, thinking about my time doing oncology trials, we heard from a lot of sites that parking fees were tremendously expensive, especially at large academic sites. And so 
you know, having that money immediately available for the participant to help pay for that. We've also heard that mileage is also a concern, but again, we want the sites to, we want the sites to be able to make use of these services, but if they don't, then we want to be able to also support them to what they may have. They may have, they may have staff who can do home visits. They may have something already worked out that they can, you know, do these home visits or, or have a good method in place to book travel. We just don't want it to ever be a, a limitation. So, you know, I, I would say for us, a key challenge is site adoption of, of some of these strategies. Um, and we're always looking for, for ways to minimize how much work the site is doing because we do, we do understand it is a, is a heavy lift for them doing these clinical trials. Yeah. And and I definitely I definitely can can understand that and I can, and I we we see that on our end too and I think part of it is look we haven't done a great job of um, trying to include them in this discussion right so I think you know when we decided that you know decentralization is the way to go it's the way of the future you know COVID really pushed us a little forward with that and we all came together and we're like okay we're gonna need to implement this we need to look into these technologies. But I, I feel often we didn't really include sites like, okay, is this going to work for you? What are some of the hesitations you have in, you know, utilizing home health? Um, because they do have concerns, and mostly their concerns are coming from a place of questions, of of unknowns. Um, and then there are sometimes some some challenges with there's a lot of tech to utilize, you know, and and how do we navigate all of these different platforms? And so I I do believe that we have an opportunity here to really try to, to work with sites to understand, okay, how can we, how can we be flexible in these offerings? Because we know that these are things that you, that you need, that your patients need. Um, how can we be flexible in, in the way we work with you to provide them? Um, and I think we have a little bit more work to do because we know that this is, we know that these solutions are what patients, we hear from patients all the time that they need to have these, the support in this way. So now we just need to find a way that we can work with everyone to provide it. They too. I mean, the other part that we get caught in is that, you know, we talked a lot about raising clinical trial awareness and we're caught in this inter interesting paradox where patients won't ask their providers about clinical trials because they expect the provider to tell them about clinical trials that they are potentially eligible for. Meanwhile, the healthcare providers, they don't know every single trial that that person may be, you know, eligible for. And so we get kind of lost in this, like I said, a paradox of, of how do we do this effectively to make sure that they are aware, at least arm them with information so they can go to their provider and feel comfortable about asking about, about the clinical trial. So that's another key challenge for us is how do we effectively wear a, a raise clinical trial awareness and you know, a couple of years ago during COVID, like everybody knew about clinical trials because of the COVID vaccine trials. And so I thought this was really great. You know, we're finally getting, you know, some recognition, clinical trials are a thing. And now it seems to have gone downhill again, um, where there's less awareness of, of clinical trials. Um, and so I'd like to kind of see it swing the other way where we get out there and, and do more to raise that awareness that, you know, across all therapeutic areas. Absolutely, because it shouldn't take a global pandemic for people to care about clinical <laughs> research or know about it. And, and that's what we saw. It was, a, it was, you know, in everyone's face. Now it's not. But the, the truth of the matter is clinical research is a clear option. Tamika's already pointed on this. 
it offers so many medical and health benefits for people. Mm -hmm. It needs to be a global campaign for awareness. It can't be necessarily on the sites to educate everyone. Um, it needs to be taken as a, as a global campaign because people need to understand from an early age, like I've said this before, it needs to be something that we talk about you know, in our schools so that children grow up hearing it as something that they can consider not only for a career path, but as just participants and, and advocates in their own health journey. Um, so it needs to be kind of like started on that level, but then there needs to be campaigns about it because th there are so many benefits that people are unaware of, you know, in participating in clinical research. And it doesn't just have to be for something that is necessarily that you need to do for that's life-saving. It could be for any 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 indication or anything you're you're interested in um, in providing data for uh, for research purposes, so um, I agree with you. It there needs to be a lot more awareness, and it doesn't. It's not our the site's responsibility because they they can't just go through clinicaltrials.gov at every visit and be like, okay, <laughs> here's what's on the docket today. Have you considered? So we need to just educate and and really make people aware. And and when I say we, I, again, I don't know who the we is, but there needs to be more um, noise about creating some sort of campaign that addresses clinical research as a care option. Jamaica. Thanks for that, LaQuinta. So I also think to your point of awareness and it being a broader exercise that is, is incumbent on the entire industry and, and healthcare providers to talk about, there's a huge element of trust that goes into that as well. Because if we can start educating more on what clinical trials are, how drugs get there, how they get into your pharmacy, what's the, the developmental process they go through. Uh, I think more people will have more confidence that the medications they're taking are actually for them because they actually understand a little bit more about what went into it, right? Like I talked earlier, clinical trials is the first pillar in healthcare, but people don't understand that. And so as a broader um, you know, group, if we can start also having those early discussions in, in primary schools, about how do drugs actually get here? How do medicines actually get here? And, and what does it mean? I think it will go a long way. Um, and if you empower one person, you can you know, educate one person, you can often empower a community. Um, and that's certainly the approach that, that we're working towards here at Moderna. Absolutely. Christine? Uh, I completely agree with everything you said, Jamika. I think it does need to be embedded in our um, curriculums earlier on. I think it's important that it's a component of our education and I also think that it's important that we include these, that we don't just wait until the time that we're ready to execute a trial to start engaging these communities and educating them about the importance of clinical trials. I think it's important that we're transparent in how we execute trials, not just in terms of their consenting, um, the, the rights to consent, but also in terms of making their findings of studies readily available to participants. I think that people will feel more vested in the trials if they, if they see, you know, the benefits of their contributions, you know, are they likely to benefit? Has the information that was obtained from them participating benefited others? What happened? I mean, a lot of times people come into communities, conduct these studies and just leave. And that can seem really transactional. And that's also a barrier to building um, trust in the community. Yeah, the, the feedback loop definitely needs some work, um, you know, because, you know, if we're going to preach empowerment and taking control of your health journey and advocating for yourself with your healthcare professional to be a part of clinical research, then people are going to keep taking that empowerment on throughout the, the, this trial. They're going to want to know, okay, what, what next? <laughs> you know, what happened? Um, and so we really do need to address that feedback loop as we enter this phase of really pushing the narrative of clinical research and making people more aware. I agree with you, Christine. 
And, and I guess, Megan, so, you know, you're, you're living and breathing this, and you're implementing these solutions and your trials today. So how have you navigated these challenges? How are you navigating these challenges? Well, with respect to raising clinical trial awareness, um, we're trying different recruitment strategies, each targeted with a, a, a different a different strategy, basically. So multiple recruitment challenges or cha channels. Um, and then we're able to track all of this through one portal. Uh, we're working with a, a vendor called Rayify Health um, to in their ones in their study team platform. So that way we can see how each recruitment channel is is operating. So that's what we're doing in terms of of raising clinical trial awareness. We're trying, you know, direct to patient. We're trying direct to healthcare provider. We're trying um, traditional advertising campaigns, but again, just more of of making sure that we're casting the net as wide as possible. Um, and so then with some of the other things that we're doing, you know, we are working with MD Group um, to help provide the patient travel and concierge services as well as home health. We're just very keen on making sure that there are options available to our participants because not everyone is going to, you know, depending on, there's been plenty of surveys about this that, you know, older people feel more comfortable going on site for, for visits. They want that face time with their healthcare provider, whereas younger individuals may, you know, may feel more comfortable doing it at home or another location. And so we want to be able to have that flexibility in there. And we've done that also by building that into our protocols um, to make sure that, you know, we're able to make use of that. And then the other part of it, too, is that we've been very, very um, selective in terms of what technology we want our sites to use. I know that sites are using a lot of their own technology. They've invested a lot of money in that technology. So I don't want to barge in and say, here, you have to use this. And so we're trying to make sure that we're using platforms that make sense, that work within that workflow of the site. Because again, if we can help ease their burden, we can help the, the patients on, on the side as well, being able to get into the sites um, and get them potentially screened for our clinical trial. So those are just a few of the things that we're doing here. Um, and and we're having, you know, we're, we're having quite a bit of success in, in implementing these types of strategies. Yeah, I mean, I think just the, the fact alone that you're addressing the tech, the technology issue, I mean, you're being very intentional about how you're mm -hmm how you're working with the sites and letting them know, okay, like what works for you. And I think, again, that, that goes back to like, you know, we need them on board. We need them mm -hmm. to be willing to, to use these services so that we can make a difference. So really understanding how we can best work with them is going to be key. So I think we can now shift our gears. We've, we've talked, we've heard from the patient perspective. We've talked about clinical ops and how, you know, they're working and navigating this. And so I want to shift our gear, gears now to addressing more of the scientific community. So um, Christine, from your experience, what, what is the typical response to this DC key conversation from, from the scientific community who are working in these trials? Um, so yeah, uh, I would say, I would caution to say that we are cautiously optimistic. I think it seems really promising, um, especially with the flexibility of using hybrid models. And I also um, know as from a drug discovery perspective, that we benefited largely from incorporating AI technologies into our workflows. And so and from a drug discovery perspective, we've been able to benefit from things like uh, using AI to do things like drug target identification, predicting, predicting drug, uh, drug interactions, de novo drug discovery, 
and even candidate prioritizing which drug, drug candidates too. And so given the benefits that we've experienced from a bench side, I can, um, I can suppose, I can imagine that it would be also greatly beneficial in a clinical space by implementing similar AI technologies in terms of um, decentralized trials. Um, using this technology, we can do things like streamline data, data capture and data processing. There's ways to embed into those AI platforms, ways to threshold data, so that way you can quickly be part of, um, informed about anomalies or threshold, safety thresholds that are reached. Um, there's a lot of ways that just automating the process can reduce the introduction of human error that's um, there when you use rely on paper methods and transcribing um, numbers and things like that. So I think it's really really promising in terms of how it will power studies and ensure the integrity of the data that's received that's obtained from these studies. And that's really important, not just from informing the next steps for the drug that's being studied in these in these trials, but also because the results from these trials then go on to inform the funding decisions that are made by federal agencies and private sector's decisions to invest. So I think all around it has the benefit of improving the entire drug discovery pipeline. So I think that's really important. So we're excited. That's that's good to hear. And I think, you know, when we talk about like data capture, for example, and um, ensuring the quality of data, is, is that is that a challenge that is that a challenge that you you see? And this question, you know, I can start with you, Christine, but it's open to anyone. Um, when we talk about facilitating these trials, we talk about going to the home. Um, is data capture and quality of data a challenge? Is it is it is it a barrier? And if you think it is, how how are you overcoming it? And um, Christine, I guess I can address you first. Do you see that as being a as being a potential challenge in facilitating some of these these types of things in the home? Um, I can definitely see it as a challenge on the back end in terms of like what the capacity that we're able to acquire is much greater. And so with um, DCTs, we're, track, we're using sensory um, wearables that can track metrics in real time. They're accumulating a lot more data than just time points when patients are coming into brick and mortar sites. And so with that aggregation and accumulation of vast data sets, you know, we have to have a workflow that enables us to process that data and interpret it to get meaningful. And so I think that's where things like incorporating AI and machine learning to um, segment data into ways that we can identify trends and come up with actionable steps on how to proceed. Um, also for identifying points of um, inequity and things like that. So from an endpoint standpoint, I definitely think that DCTs and using um, electronic methods can definitely help advance the pace of research and drug discovery. Thanks, Christine. I don't know, Megan or Jamika, if you want to add anything to that. Um, I just real quickly, I mean, from my perspective, I haven't seen anything, the, the number of, of procedures that can be done remotely is, you know, a, continues to, to grow and grow in terms of what can be done at, at the participant's home or another location. Um, I haven't worried too much of, about the, the data integrity that is being reported back, um, because certainly, you know, a lot of rare disease trials have done this for years and years by now. Um, from my perspective, you know, the one thing that I do worry about sometimes is about the um, the blood collection um, and just making sure that, you know, it's, it's a lot of the protocols have really complex blood sampling and processing requirements. And so, I, you know, I do sometimes worry about the integrity of those samples and, you know, if, 
when your endpoints are driven by laboratory values, um, you know, if the sample arrives and it's analyzed and maybe slightly hemolyzed, it may impact your results. And so I would say for me, that's probably the, the one thing that I would be concerned about. But overall, I, you know, I, I don't have concerns with, with the remote visits. Yeah, I would I would agree. We haven't found that from our side either. Um, the data quality is still certainly um, superior. Uh, I think we also found this out during COVID. Um, we had to really adapt. Remember COVID, lots of people were on lockdown, right? Like we we just couldn't access um, healthcare in the same way. And so we really you know have I think strong data to show that it's not the quality is not compromised. Um, but I also think um, you know Chris Christine brings up a really good point too, where um, we have to we have to actually ask the, the participants what most fits for them. So like we do a lot of insights mining before we ever start a trial to understand, hey, will these samples be okay sitting in your fridge for for three days before the lab comes to pick them up, right? Like the lab coming to pick them up isn't necessarily the only problem. We also have to really solve for does this infringe on one's privacy if they're sharing a, a fridge with others, you know, and all those different components. And so we really seek to um, listen and learn and then kind of um, design our trials around what's practical from a patient perspective. Yeah, I just, oh, go ahead, Christine. Well, I was just gonna, um, just wanna make, to clarify, I admit that DCTs can improve data integrity. I wasn't saying that they don't, um, I was agreeing with what Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, it, it's good to like kind of talk about both angles because, you know, some of the concerns you do hear is about, okay, well, if we're doing it in the home, how can we ensure the quality of the data? How can we ensure, you know, that we're capturing the right, the right endpoints and that everything is moving smoothly as it would in the site? Um, and the truth of the matter is that like, you know, you know, to your point, Christine and Megan and, and Jamika's as well, is that we have found ways to navigate this. When it comes to the more complex blood draws and processing, you do have to ask the right questions if you're utilizing home health, like, you know, what are the skill sets of the, the HCP that's going into the home? Have they had training in this? Can you do that? So you do have to do your homework and ensure you're using the best resources that are most uh, best equipped to manage the scope within your protocol in the home. But if you're doing that, then yeah, you're right. There, there should be um, countless more opportunities for us to capture data. When we look at like this space though, and like obviously, um, to Megan's point, we've been doing these things for for a very long time in the in the rare um, and orphan disease space, and you know, COVID kind of brought us all you know in the mix to to utilizing these solutions across the board and across many indications. But since then, it, I feel like there have been a lot of new technologies and processes and things that have really popped up. So, um, and this is an open one, and and whoever wants to go first can can chime in. But um, what solutions and innovations? are happening right now that you're most excited about in this space that will make us realize even more possibilities when it comes to conducting trials in a decentralized way? I have two that popped to mind um, <laughs> that we're, we're, we're actively leveraging. One is the use of mobile vans um, in order to uh, introduce clinical trials, also to um, you know, as an actual research site, we found this extremely valuable when it comes to um, Gen Z and um, individuals who may be in college and more transient in nature, um, kind of pinning individuals down that are in college. If you have a big trial and, and that's the, the predominant age group that you're looking for based on the disease, 
be really challenging. But mobile units and mobile vans um, we found to be uh, very, very beneficial. Um, and then the other that we really uh, are leaning into a lot, I, I'm sure many people may, an Oculus, right? So how can we actually um, take the experience and bring it to uh, individuals through virtual reality is something that we're also really focused on. How can we get you know, participants in the same virtual room with providers? Um, you know, I think it's important to also consider decentralized trials globally. Um, we have individuals who participate from many countries and uh, oftentimes um, we have key investigators who may not be in that central location. Um, Eric mentioned before, he's traveled to Houston, he's traveled to UCLA, um, but wouldn't it be novel to be able to actually have some of those visits utilizing virtual reality and to talk through some elements um, as opposed to him having to go in person. So those are just a few things that I, I'm personally really excited about. I think that it bridges technology um, with kind of um, meeting people where they are in a way that um, excites the industry and certainly um, I think excites our patients. I'm really excited about the virtual reality one. Um, that would be, there's so many things that you can do with that, even from just, you know, having the ability to, like you said, not just to connect with your provider, but to, you know, how, how we interface with learning about the protocol, how we interface with learning about next steps, what to expect, because a lot of times, you know, there was some resistances in the fear of the unknown. So how can we make just learning about the trial more immersive? Um, so really, really interesting. Um, Megan, how about you? Anything you'd like to add? Uh, just echoing what Jamika said about the mobile units, I think that is tremendously exciting and an excellent avenue to, to, um, to pursue. Um, I think for me, one of the things that I've found really heartening over the past several months is the willingness of you know, different vendors that provide these different services, there's more discussion amongst the vendors on how they can integrate and how they can really fully, you know, work together. And I think that's just setting up, setting us up to be in this wonderful space where there is more collaboration, realizing that, you know, one strategy does this, another strategy does that. And so it's like a puzzle all coming together. And so that's something that I'm personally very excited to see is, is a lot more collaboration um, in, in an industry where we've typically been very protective of, of any intel that we may have or, you know, sharing information, it's, I think it's a good stepping stone forward. Yeah, I, I would like to echo that. I've definitely seen that in the past few years, and it is, it is what it's going to take to make true change. And mm -hmm. I'm really glad to see that it's happening more and more than it ever has before, collaboration part. Yeah. I would like to piggyback in on that. I'm um, participating in two investigational research studies, and it came about by the collaboration of two different um, healthcare providers that I've worked with over the past six months. And, and they started working together without me putting them together. It's amazing. I started part working on this study in the past few weeks. It's perfect for me because they worked together on all of my all the data they had on me over the past six months. Been a blessing, that collaboration, game changer. Um, and I wanted to say to Christine, you've been talking about on the pharma side, I wanna say something earlier. You know, in my mind, it's always been kind of, pharma's the bad guy. Why aren't they spending more money? Spending more money on these clinical trials. 
I will tell you, they have some amazing programs. Um, the patient assistance programs to get the to get the the drugs you need, and I've had great success with all of those and clinical trials and other you know research studies that I've been participating in. I don't know if people know about patient assistance programs. They're a little tedious to go through, but they're critically important. Um, you got to work with your healthcare provider to go through it. So they're a little tedious, but they're you can navigate them if you have the right support. If you have if you know the right people to talk to, they are game changers, and they're easy to navigate. And the people are there to help. Really good people. I've been really happy with those. It means a lot to hear that um, from the patient side. I know I'm, I work in, in industry, but I come from an academic background. So we also have that negative perception of pharma. Um, and since I've entered pharma, actually the company I work for, I was really pleased to know that they actually partner with the foundation that helps to make healthcare accessible, make our therapies accessible to the patients um, in terms of affordability. And that was something that I don't think is highlighted enough that some pharmaceutical companies are in, um, investing in and also compassionate use of pharmaceutical therapy to make them more accessible. So um, I definitely hear you. I do think it's a point of concern, but I also think that we have to highlight the efforts that are being made to change that. So thank you for bringing that up. Sure thing. You've been doing great work. Pleasantly surprised. It's always nice to be pleasantly surprised. And I, I mean, I think that that, to your point, Christine, like making awareness of these types of programs, it goes into the conversation of clinical research. You know, if we're going to change the perception that, the, you know, that the public has of clinical trials, then we need to share all of the information, you know, all the good things that, that can come from it and the good things that the industry are doing. So, um, Eric, thank you for bringing that up. And Christine, thank you for your, your comments on it as well. Well, we are getting close to the end of our hour together, believe it or not. I feel like it's only been about five minutes, um, but here we are um, towards the end. And I, I do want to close with, with one question for all of you to kind of weigh in on. And right now, it, we're, he we're here in the now. Centralization is on everyone's mind. We're all working to like bring these solutions into our protocols and find ways that we can, you know, really just improve this patient journey. But do we think that this is the future? Is this gonna stick? Or is this something that's just here for the moment? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And um, we'll go around the virtual room. I will start with Christine and then go around my circle. I'll call you out. So Christine, how about you first? Um, I definitely think it's a, re a very feasible platform, especially the hybrid model. I think that there's no one size fits all solution to clinical trials. There are certain therapeutics that just aren't amenable for a decentralized, uh, a fully decentralized um, model. Um, things like gene therapy or also very um, innovative drugs where we don't really have a, a comprehensive understanding of the safety profiles that might require more monitoring. So I think that there's still things to be worked out with that. Um, but as far as flexibility and capability, I do think it's something that we've learned a lot from COVID and I would love to see being applied to other disease contexts. Thanks, Christine. Um, how about you, Eric? Yeah, my belief, the hybrid model, if it brings more awareness and brings more clinical trials, more patients is the way to go. A thousand percent. That's it. Final answer. Thanks, Eric. And um, over to you, Jamika. Yeah, I agree. I think um, decentralized and hybrid models are here to stay. I would love to see a lot of fine tuning. Um, associated with it, as well as how we can expand this globally, because um, the United States is, is just one footprint. 
um, on our quest to bring better health to people living worldwide. Absolutely. And then over to you, Megan. Yeah, definitely. They're here to stay. Um, I think probably more of a hybrid model, as Eric was mentioning, as opposed to a fully decentralized model. But, you know, I think the important thing that we've learned is that um, we can't assume that we know what the participant or the patient wants, that we need to actively get feedback from those impacted by the disease and then make sure that what we're doing makes sense for the participant and then also for the site as well. Yeah, absolutely. It needs to be like collaboration amongst, you know, patient sponsors and sites. We all need to, we need to listen. We need to share our feedback and our ideas. Okay, so now we're going to go to Q&A from the audience. Um, we do have a few questions that have come in. And the first question is, um, it's to you, Eric. So um, you made a point earlier about the awareness of trials. How does the average patient know that these resources for, you know, participating in clinical research exist? And after you ask, answer that question, what tools are available to break this barrier, and that might be one that we could open up to everyone. So first, Eric, how does how does the average patient know um, about these resources? How did you find out? The first place we went was clinicaltrials.gov. It's not the most user-friendly website. You got to start with your, you know, for me, it was my neuro-oncologist. You're looking for connections. I think networking is was the prime priority for me. You know, did did some research and started interviewing people. You know, we interviewed doctors all across the country. You know, it, it sounds made up, but literally reached out to the top neuro-oncologist at the top research institution across the country. So I was reaching out to Sloan Kettering, to Dana Farber up in Boston to UCLA, to Berkeley, you think of, to MD Anderson, you think of it, whoever you can think of that's the best of the best. How did I know that? Googled it. <laughs> um, family networking, clinicaltrials.gov. That's where I started. And I think to your point, um, you know, you just said you Googled it. I know that a lot of patients I talk to, they find out about these resources on Facebook. You know, they they go to their parent groups if they're part of um, a group that's dedicated to their indication that their child has or that they have. They ask around that way. Um, I think that's how people also are finding out about these resources. Does anyone else want to add add to that? I would say other organiz organization that specializes in patient advocacy and support, Gladiator <laughs> Project, ABTA. American Brain Tumor Association, MD group. There's lots of them out there. The NREF, we work with lots of those. That's what I would do. And I, I think tools that are available to break this barrier, because I think, you know, the, the answer to that question is, is kind of what we were, I think what we were been saying this whole time is the, the lack of awareness. Um, because again, you know, in order to know what to Google, and and what to what sites to look at and even that patient advocacy groups are a thing you just have to have some some general awareness of the idea of clinical clinical trials and you know i think we we have a lot of work to do to to break that barrier down whether it be through education 
through campaigns. Um, you know, if if all the the pharma come together to collaborate and make an awareness campaign that that goes national or global, you know, maybe that could be a start. But there, we have to start with just that awareness barrier first, and then then these other avenues, these organizations, these groups, clinicaltrials.gov, that will then be more more apparent to people. And you know, clinicaltrials.gov is not easy to navigate for everyone. And you know, maybe there's something we can do about that in the future. But um, you know, certainly, you know, just starting by raising the awareness that it's there can, can be the first step. I, th I think it'll be interesting, and I don't know if this is already done, but if we could embed it into our electronic healthcare um, platform, I know from a from like a like my friends that have been um, that are medical students and med and clinicians talk about how their the electronic healthcare uh, health record system has changed the way that they diagnose, and so if a patient comes in and presents with certain symptoms then they're cued to do certain tests and evaluate certain things to mitigate risk and make sure that all of their bases are covered. It would be nice if we could find a way to embed the clinical trials that correlate with those symptoms or those conditions into that system. So that way, not only are um, physicians given information about what tests to run, but also if they don't have any other options or if, there's, if their patient is a good candidate for certain trials, that they can also pass on that information as well. Not sure if that's being done, but maybe it's something to consider for the future. Yeah, to my knowledge, it is not being done. <laughs> um, and, you know, as as a patient myself, it's never it's never been um, presented to me. But I think that's a that's a great idea because again, then we're presenting it as a care option, right? Like when we go to our doctors, we want to know about all the options we have um, for care, and this is one of those options. So I think that that would be a great idea, in my opinion. Um, we have an, another question. This again can go to anyone. Um, the question is, how can we make use of technology and DCTs and still be mindful of the technology divide and individual accessibility requirements? And actually, I'm going to direct that question first off to Jamika because we actually we've had a conversation before about this very this very topic. So, Jamika, how do we how do we address the fact that um, there's lots of technology, but everyone doesn't have access to to technology, Wi-Fi, or all the things that are needed to utilize it. Yeah, it's it's a, a huge um, concern, and we see disparities and broaden when it comes to to technology in the space and how it's utilized. Um, I think there's a couple of points that I, I just want to like highlight. The first is like we're taking technology and as it currently stands and trying to fit it into our models, and it would be great to get to a place I think for biggest impact to to think about early on how we want to leverage technology in a novel way as opposed to just trying to adapt it um, you know, um, into how we need it to be. But also, um, we have run into challenges um, with many of our trials. Um, I'll give an example of, you know, we do global work. And so depending on if it's a developing nation, um, oftentimes we'll provision devices. If someone doesn't have a device, um, we'll provide the technology tool for them. Um, but we ran into some situations where the technology tool itself uh, costs more than the individual in that area, um, the average um, annual income. And so it posed an individual security and safety risk for the participant. Um, they were taking home a very expensive device um, and they were very concerned about what about my own safety and welfare. And so I think we have to be mindful that um, the technology can work to our advantage, but it also um, 
you know, has to be utilized in a way that's considerate of fears um, and realities that they exist in. Um, so I think that's that's something that we found. Um, and then, you know, the Amish community is um, another area that we focus on. Um, and it's just, it's not feasible, but clinical trials should still be feasible uh, for that community. And so um, we want to make sure that, you know, we're adapting and, and utilizing technology um, in a way that brings people in and doesn't further divide. Absolutely. We, we don't want technology to be another way that we're excluding people from participating in research. We, we, want, we want to increase inclusion. Um, so we do have to be mindful about that. And technology can do a lot of great things. And I think that we just have to be aware that we have to have other solutions for those who either aren't able to or aren't willing to utilize it. And then I think we have we have one other point. It's an, actually a point. It's not a question, um, but it's a good point from um, from someone in the audience um, that many people view clinical trials as a final opportunity to treat a disease or condition which impacts enrollment earlier in a disease or condition trajectory. And clinical trial awareness messaging could address this. And I think that that is spot on and basically, you know, just definitely resonates with what we've been saying all along. Um, it's not, that's not the only reason to join a clinical trial. There are many other reasons to participate in research. Um, and, you know, even, you know, just one of someone I was talking to recently, you know, her, her son has ophthalmology, um, ophthalmologic disorder. And, um, they're participating in a trial that there will be no treatment in her son's lifetime, like there won't be. But she knows that by participating in this trial, that for other people like him in the future, it will, it could produce, you know, a surgery or a treatment that could um, in, in, incredibly change that person's quality of life. And that's their reason for participating. Um, so no, no, they're not getting a direct benefit, but they're, they're doing it for, to benefit others in the future. There are many reasons to participate in research. And the more we kind of make awareness a priority of all these different reasons, the, the better we're going to have um, finding um, abilities to bring in other communities and increase enrollment uh, for our clinical trials. So that is brings us a little over our time. Um, so I want to thank everyone who, who stuck it out for the whole hour and six, seven minutes now. And for our panelists, um, thanks, thanks to every single one of you for coming. Um, to, um, to to join us today on this panel and talk about this important topic, taking time out of your day. Um, it is greatly appreciated. Um, you know, I think that if there's anyone out there who was interested in any of the topics we discussed, there's so many ways to get involved. Um, there are so many organizations where you can actually be a part of working groups that are looking to, you know, for example, review the FDA guidance and provide that feedback, you know, looking to find ways that we can address um, you know, how to increase clinical trial awareness in diverse communities. There's a lot of ways to get involved. Um, and even on the patient side, there are so many organizations like the Gladiator Project that are trying to do some of this work and they're within their indication. And there are ways that you can get involved with programs like that even by dedicating time or resource. Um, so definitely feel free to, to jump in and get involved in however, however you can. Um, and certainly, if you have any questions for any of the guests here um, today, you know, they're, they're all, their names have been listed in all of the information and promos. You can easily find them on LinkedIn um, and social media. And, and I know that the, the individuals here are such advocates for raising awareness in this space and would be happy to answer any questions that you have. 
um, Eric's organization is called the God Aider Project, and you can always find them too on LinkedIn and social media and look them up and learn more about the good work that they are doing as well. Um, for more content around key issues in the clinical research industry, please feel free to follow MD Group on social media as well, MD Group International on Twitter. Um, you can find us really anywhere social exists. We also have a podcast called MD Talk that you can listen to that addresses topics like this on a monthly basis. And it's had the, I've had the pleasure of having both Eric and Jamika on episodes before in the past. So definitely look those up and hear all about um, other ways that um, they're looking to, to make change in the space. Again, thank you all for, for participating in our webinar today. And um, we look forward to doing more of these and please feel free to keep the questions coming even after today's session has ended. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.